In our last two sermons from the book of Philippians, we looked at uh, this, this magnificent passage that we see in verses uh, 5 through 11. Uh, in it, we saw the unbelievable humiliation of the Son of God who leaves his place in heaven and humbles himself to a place of ultimate humiliation in an act of loving service unlike any other and in joyful and perfect obedience to the Father, he sets an example that we are to strive after. And last week, we saw the response of God the Father to this obedient humility as he exalted Christ to the position of highest glory and honor. We were reminded last week about the glorious truth that Jesus Christ is right now reigning in the position of highest exaltation and that even though many in this world, many in this world do not recognize it or submit to his lordship, it is nonetheless true. And there is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that one truth that we hold to be most precious, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that passage, verses 5 through 11, is an absolutely beautiful passage that cannot help but, but bring worship forth from us. It causes us to behold Jesus Christ and all of his beauty and glory and to be both humbled and encouraged. But we need to remember that the point of this passage, the reason that Paul shares it, is because he wants the Philippians to have that model in their head, to have those verses in their head, to see this picture of Jesus Christ and to be changed by it. So they have just been told by Paul to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. And, and that means living in unity, living in unity in our church by placing the needs of others above their own and by refusing to do anything out of selfish motivation. And to encourage them then in this lifestyle, that's what he does in verses 5 through 11. He gives them this wonderful hymn of Christ in order that they will see what true humility looks like and then to also be motivated by the position of Christ as, as the reward of God the Father for his obedience, to be motivated by the, um, the reward of God given to Christ. What Paul is doing here then illustrates a biblical principle that is kind of the, uh, you could say it's the foundation for everything that we do in this church. Namely, the understanding that a deep understanding of theology is the foundation and driving force uh, for right Christian living or Christian practice. So as I mentioned a few weeks ago, that 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 passage in Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is one of the most researched and written on passages in, and not just Philippians, but in the entire Bible. There have been many pages in, in academic works and many pages in systematic theologies that have been taken up analyzing that passage and trying to explore all of the riches of the theology that we see in that passage. And it is, it is well worth it. And what we talked about the last couple of weeks is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of theological richness when it comes to that passage. But as with all meaty and weighty theological passages in the Bible, and every passage in the Bible, the purpose behind these verses is to convict and encourage the people of God to wise and holy living so that we may strive to be more conformed to Christ. So, example, yesterday morning we had our STM meeting, Shepherds, Theologians, and Men, and we continued in that class learning about God as triune, why it is significant that he is triune, and how, how the different persons of the Trinity perform separate roles to accomplish the will of God. But the reason for this ministry, and for any ministry at Grace Church, isn't for it to end in mere growth in intelligence and understanding, it, it has to go from there 
into a motivation for sanctification. We want the theology that the men learn on those Saturdays to make them stronger and more wise for their roles as shepherds and their families and in the church and their roles as men. That they would lead and serve better as they are encouraged and convicted through a greater and greater and greater understanding of who God truly is. We believe this is the way that a church must do ministry because that is exactly what you see is the pattern throughout the whole New Testament. You have all of these commands and instructions on how we are to live as aliens and strangers in this world, what it means to live as one who has been saved and set apart, and what it means and, and to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. You have all of these instructions. You see these instructions, and they're always tightly connected to theological truth, to doctrine, with the implication being that the theological truth is necessary for the work of sanctification and for the ministry of the church to be done correctly and to be done powerfully. And so sometimes you'll hear criticisms of a church like ours that has hour-long sermons and, and puts the focus of the entire service on instructing and a equipping the church body rather than using it as an opportunity for outreach, you will hear things like, they are all about theology and not about love or not about ministry, implying that the only thing that we do here is, is puff, up the, puff up brains and, and allow people to think that it is okay to just continue to grow in knowledge and never really do anything other than that. But that type of thinking goes against the clear pattern of the entire New Testament and is the exact type of thinking that leads to the weak state of not only theology in the church, but also to a lot of uninformed Christian practice and ministry that's currently doing more harm than good. This is what has led to countless amounts of churches and parachurch ministries around our country and even around the world that are leading to so many false conversions and confused Christians. I mean, of course, it could be possible that a church might major only on teaching theology and never getting around to applying theology. And I would argue that, that in such a situation, theology is actually not being taught accurately. But it is also true, and by far the greater concern, that true Christian practice and real growth and sanctification cannot happen absent the constant, faithful, and deep teaching of sound doctrine. It cannot. And this is exactly what Paul expects to happen with the unbelievable theology that he has just reminded us of in verses 5 through 11. He expects this to have been the best possible way. Diving deep into Christology is the best possible way to motivate and instruct these Christians in their growth and in their godliness. Our growth in sanctification is the ultimate end to the rich theology that we have looked at in the last two sermons in Philippians. And Paul wants that amazing picture of Christ to, to be in you right now, inflaming your heart as he gets into this next section, and in particular, into these next two verses that we're looking at today. They're two of the most important verses in the Bible on helping us to understand how sanctification works in the life of a believer. So look with me at those two verses. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, in those verses, there is, there's only one imperative, work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation. That's the imperative. Clearly, Paul is not telling the Philippians that it is their responsibility to 
save themselves. That's not what he's saying when he uses the word salvation here. That goes against everything else he's ever said. It says work out your salvation, right? Not work for your salvation. This is not earning something, but rather a demonstration of the presence of something. This this passage is not about how people uh, are saved, but about how saved people act, how saved people work out their salvation, and, and especially so in the context of the church that they are a part of. Remember, just remember the overall context of this passage. We'll look at it again in a second. The overall context of this passage uh, is still living in unity within the body of Christ. So, and so, so when he's talking about salvation here, uh, in, in the church, uh, he, he's talking about the, the, the sanctification aspect of it. So there's a, a past, a present, and a future aspect to our salvation. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We've been justified. We, we will ultimately be saved from the presence of sin on that day when Christ returns and, and when we, or, or when we die and go to be with him. That's, that's the day of our glorification. And what we are talking about today, we are currently being saved from the power of sin in our lives as we conform more and more to the likeness of Christ. This present aspect of our salvation is what we call sanctification. And today we are going to see what we need to know to be diligent in our pursuit of Christ-likeness. What we need to know to be diligent in our pursuit of Christ-likeness as we are being sanctified changed more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ on a daily basis, what should that look like? What should we expect? What should we do? What are the different roles and responsibilities in the process of sanctification? What do we need to know to be diligent in our pursuit of Christ-likeness? I have five points today that I'm hoping you will see as we go through that will hopefully help you to organize your notes. Uh, Point number one, the pattern of sanctification. Number two, the place of sanctification. Number three, the picture of sanctification. Number four, the power of sanctification. Number five, the purpose of sanctification. And I'll say those all again as we go through them. So point number one, the pattern for our sanctification. The pattern for our sanctification, the pattern of our sanctification and by that, I have in mind the idea of, of pattern as in something that you are, are copying or trying to reproduce. Okay, that type of pattern. And this, this, so this flows out of what we were kind of just talking about in that introduction. Paul's intention that they see the example of Christ that, that was just given to them, and that, and that should be their motivation. That, that Christ-like pattern they're trying to conform to. So with that in mind, I do want us to look at and remember and have in our mind the, the, that whole section again. So I know I just had you read those two verses, but let's look at all of Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 13. Uh, so that's there in your head. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, 
my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you see there, right? In, in verse 12, the very first word in the passage that we're looking at this morning, the word, therefore, therefore. So this is exactly what we were just talking about. Paul wants them to be in awe, to enter into this imperative in awe, amazed by the rich theology of that incredible passage in verses 5 through 11. But primarily, he wants them to see that, to have that in their mind, and to use it as fuel for their obedience. So in this passage, we have the command to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's the command. And Paul expects that, they, that what they just heard in those previous verses to be exactly the exact thing that they need in order to rightly obey this command that he is now giving them. That's what they need to have in their heads. They should see the incredible example of Christ, the incredible example of Christ in his humiliation and in the fulfilled promise of, of exaltation for his obedience that was given by the Father. And with this fresh in their mind, he expects the, this imperative in these verses to be followed then with eagerness and joy. Like in light of that, in light of what we saw in verses 5 through 11, of course, I want to do this. I want to, to follow this command. In fact, you could, you could actually see the therefore there um, as, as, correspond, as corresponding to God's therefore in verse 9, right? In, in verses 5 through 11 of the humiliation of Jesus Christ, then we see in verse 9, therefore, God has highly exalted him. So just as God responded to the humble, servant-hearted obedience of, of the Son, so now also every Christian, as they witness this, needs to respond appropriately to the example of Jesus, Jesus Christ by living in the type of humble obedience in the, in the overarching purpose of pleasing the Father that we have seen in Jesus just now. We were told in verse five to we were told in verse five to have the mind of Christ among ourselves, that we as a redeemed people should be marked by a desire to think like Jesus did and to aspire to Christ likeness. And now we have seen in these last two weeks the unbelievable calling of what it looks like to be humble and to live for others. So we've seen this example in Christ, and we needed to because were we merely commanded to be humble and live for others, we would possibly then be left alone to define what that looks like to ourselves. And then we could be tempted to be, to be satisfied when we see ourselves attaining to a superficial standing or standard of humility that we have set for ourselves. But God graciously through Paul, does not allow us to set our own standard. He lays out the ultimate example in, in such a way that there is no way that any of us could, could ever say, that any of us could ever say that, we have, that we've hit the mark, that we're there. As Christians, we, we don't just want to live lives that are better than others by comparison. We want Christ-likeness. We want to be as, as close to that as we can in this life. That is what we want. And Paul expects that to be true of us and expects this example to have its intended effect on all true Christians. Right? No true Christian will be able or can look at, at the example of all that Christ did for us on our account and then just say, thanks, and then go on living for themselves again. One who really understands that passage, who, who, who has, has really looked into that passage and sees what Jesus has done for us, 
doesn't just slap on a WWJD bracelet and call it good. You're like, all right, I got it. This is what Paul expects of their reaction. He expects them to embrace this and and want to change as a result of it. And you you can know this, uh, that this is true, that this is what Paul wants of them by that next little phrase of my beloved. He says, therefore, my beloved. And as, as we have said before, Paul knows that he is writing to believers. And he truly believes all of the promises of God when it comes to God's work among God's people. He expects that, he expects that these hearts that he is writing to have been regenerated. And those who love the gospel will see what he is saying as, as a joyful motivation. My beloved is a reminder of Paul's immense care for them, his love for them. He doesn't just say, he doesn't just say beloved, which, which is, is just also kind and demonstrates concern, and he's done that in other places, but, but the personal pronoun really is there in Greek, right? Uh, the personal pronoun mu, which means my. He has a deep affection for them, a personal affection for them. So this term of care and endearment shows that that Paul doesn't have any sense that he is just that he is merely just giving them some marching orders that they have to line up with and obey whether they like it or not. Even though he has the uh, the apostolic authority to to demand their obedience, he's not enacting that here. He is giving them this this loving pastoral appeal to, that, that, that's for their own good. He's helping them to understand even better something that he is certain that they already desire. He's certain that they already desire this, and he's helping them to see how to live to attain it. So these are the loving instructions of a friend more than they are the commands of an officer. But yes, it is an imperative. It is a command. But, but, but he knows that this is, the, this is the exact type of command that they will rejoice to obey. Right? It's the difference between uh, like, like a child being told by a parent to do something that they don't want to do, but they need to line up and do it anyway, even though that command might be a loving command. And then when the, the child's heart has shifted and a parent is instructing them on something that the child now longs to do. Maybe, maybe something like, maybe they're finally willing to, to submit to an understanding of driving a car. Right? They, they anxiously obey because they want to be a good driver. And in the same way, Paul expects this command to fellow Christians to be something that they are eager to learn how to do better because they understand what Jesus Christ has done on their behalf. And because of their regeneration, their greatest desire is to be like Christ. And now their dear brother and apostle is giving them some of the most helpful instructions that can be given for the very thing that they want more than anything else, which is to be like Christ. So, this is a good test for us. We can, we can tell how much we truly prize wanting to be conformed to Christ by how we view his commands in Scripture. As you read them in the Bible, or as you hear them proclaimed from the pulpit, from, from those whom God has given responsibility for the instruction of your soul, do you see what is being said? Do you see what is being asked of you? Do, do you see it as a sacrifice? As, as something that you want to actually hang on to and, and use for yourself, but you're being told you got to get rid of it. You see it like that, or do you see them, do you see them as loving instructions? Do you see the example of Jesus as a wonderful pattern to emulate so that you can get closer and closer to the thing that should be most important to you in this life, your conformity to Christ, and therefore, you you desire to get rid of anything 
to rid yourself of anything that might be a hindrance to that goal. What is it that is truly most important to you? Paul expects in this passage, he expects that these people that he's writing to, conformity to Christ is what they want above everything else. And he's confident in that. So he has no problem giving them this command and expecting joyful obedience. Point two, the place of sanctification. The place of sanctification. You see that when he says, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. He says, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. That, so that phrase actually links us back to 127. Look at verse 27. Uh, when, when Paul gets into this section, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The idea of letting your life, letting your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ and that that a life that exemplifies this should exist in the lives of the Philippians, whether Paul is able to be there or not. Living a life in a manner that's worthy of the gospel means that you live a certain way no matter who is around. So what we're talking about when we say the place of sanctification is anywhere and everywhere, or, or that our pursuit of sanctification should look the same no matter where we are, no matter what trial we may be in, or no matter who is around, whether we are with church friends, whether we are with unbelieving family members, whether we are with coworkers, fellow students, whether around the pastor or our spouse. In all of these situations, your conversations and actions, they, they might look different, but your pursuit of sanctification should not change. What should be at the forefront of your mind always is what does it mean to live like Christ in whatever situation I'm in, whoever I'm around. That, that principle is getting back to what Bill talked about last Sunday night. Can you be described as one who fears God? The one who fears God is consistently working out their salvation, and it's not just something they do when they're at church or when they're in front of others. It is in no way dependent on who is there or who isn't there. This is obvious in the example of Christ that we just looked at. Jesus Christ cared about no man's opinion. He only desired to please the Father. He, he even had the ability to make everyone look foolish if he wanted to, to win every argument, to make men kneel before him. He could have sought out the praise of men and received it from all, and he would have actually deserved it. But he was content to be thought of as lowly and to endure the greatest shame imaginable in front of all of these men who had no right to think lowly of him. He only cared about being obedient to pleasing his father. And if that was the case for Christ, how much more should it be for us? Most of the time we have the desire to defend ourselves and try to look good in front of people who, if we're honest, actually probably don't think as lowly of us as they should. What someone else is going to think of you in any given situation should never have any kind of power over your decisions. If Christ's desire was to please his Father, no matter, no matter who else was around or watching, how much more should ours be the same? This obedience based on who was around, the, the kind that should only mark those who, 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 who do not know Christ, and obedience of basing things on who's around, those who do not have the Holy Spirit, that's how they act. That's actually what we saw in the, in the obedience of the Israelites, right? And it's what they are often condemned for. 
They, they saw Moses and they saw the mighty works that God did through him. And they failed to believe that the invisible God who did these mighty works through Moses was always watching and omnipresent. After they, they were saved from Egypt, and they get to Mount Sinai, even, through, uh, even, even though they experienced the, the saving works of God through the plagues and through the parting of the Red Sea, as soon as Moses was gone, they rebel and worship idols. And that's why at the end of his life, Moses had to warn them again before he died. In, in Deuteronomy 31, 25 through 27, we read this. Listen to this. Compare this to what Paul just said. Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Moses gives his instructions to the Israelites with absolutely no confidence that they are going to follow God with all their hearts after he dies. No confidence. In fact, he has confidence in the other direction. I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. That's what I know. I'm still alive and you keep trying to rebel against the Lord. How much worse when I die and you don't have me around to constantly be there to warn you and threaten you? This is the exact opposite of what we see in Paul here, of what Paul expects of those who have been saved by God through Christ. It's like, I know I don't need to be around you. Isn't it so wonderful? When you, when you look at these verses side by side, isn't it so wonderful? Aren't you so thankful for your regeneration, Christian? Have you, I mean, it's Thanksgiving week. Have you thanked God for that recently? Your wants, your desires have been completely changed by God. The difference between how Paul speaks to the church in Philippi and how Moses spoke to the Israelites is just incredible. Paul is confident in their regeneration. He speaks lovingly and tenderly to these people in a letter, in a letter. So from a distance, he is nowhere near them. He, he instructs them for their own good and fully expects them to joyfully obey and, and to do so even more than if he were there. C compared to Moses, who has no doubt that the Israelites are going to use his death as an opportunity to rebel against God if he, if he doesn't place a witness against them so they can see it. Paul's like, my beloved, I'm confident that, that you will obey even more in my absence. And Moses is like, I'm confident that you're stubborn and rebellious and it's going to get even worse as soon as I die. If, if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, your leaders and your fellow church members should, should have the exact same confidence in you that we see in Paul. But it's not necessarily because of you but because of the truth of what God has done for you in regeneration. That which the Old Testament people of God only came to know at a later date, and even then, only through prophecy. Turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27, just because I want you to see it. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, God's promise to these stubborn, rebellious people he says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols and I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So what later generations of these same Israelites knew only in an unbelievable prophecy. They, they, they knew this, this truth only in prophecy. The church in Philippi was among the first generation of those who got to live out of that reality. And that's a reality that's present now in us as well. 
And Paul knew this to be true of them. And so, so he was able to say with absolute confidence that they will have the desire to work out their salvation, not only when he is there, but much more in his absence. Much more because Paul understands that the lack of his presence is more than made up for among true believers in the presence of God. Brothers and sisters, this is true of us as well. And sometimes I think that we just take this, this amazing reality that we've been given a new heart that causes us, causes us to walk in his statutes and to be careful to obey his rules. We've just become used to it and we don't marvel daily at it. We should be right. We should be no different than those Israelites knowing the will of God but really only taking it seriously when someone's watching. As the church of Christ living in the fullness of the new, uh, of new covenant realities, the, the place of our sanctification isn't just in, in the presence of a holy man or the, the tabernacle or the temple. It is everywhere and at all times, no matter who is or isn't around, because our God is, is always present, and he is the one who, who we truly desire to please. Point number three, the picture of sanctification. The picture of sanctification. And by this I mean, what does sanctification look like? There's a lot going on in the process of sanctification, but what does it look like as we observe it? And here we get back to the actual imperative in the text. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation is the command with fear and trembling describes the way the command is obeyed. So you can see by the word work, which is a, a bad word for many of us, but should not be. You can see by the word work that the obedient Christian does not have a passive attitude towards living the Christian life. That means it's, it's going to take effort. You are going to have to work at this. It's not just let go and let God. So, so there's some aspects of salvation that it's okay to think about uh, like uh, as, as things that have happened to you. Justification, uh, the imputation of the righteousness of Christ Upon you, those are things that happen to you. Regeneration uh, is, is something God has done in you. The process described in that passage from Ezekiel that we just looked at is something that happens to you. But we are not to think of sanctification as something that will just happen to you. Work, effort on our part are involved. This is why some people. This is why it's true that some people progress faster than others in sanctification. Because they're working hard at it. So I, 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 want you to, I do want you to feel something here. Yes, there is a great joy and there is a sense of peace with knowing that our salvation is secure in Christ. It is a total work of God. It is something that will never be lost. God is the author of our salvation from election, uh, from, his, from his election of us all the way through until glorification. And you can be certain, you can be sure that if you are in Christ, he will bring you all the way there. It's as good as done. But it is also true that if you don't work out your salvation, you will not grow. You will not make progress in your Christian life. You will struggle with the same sins. Those spiritual gifts that God has given you for the good of the church, they, they will not grow stronger in you. The fruit of the Spirit will remain unripe. You will continue to have a tough time just digesting spiritual milk. If you are the type of person who sees areas of needed growth in your life and just think that that's something I'll get over someday, 
Or that you'll, I'll develop, I'll work on that fruit of the Spirit someday. And, and you don't decide to work on it right now. If you say things like, no, I'm not going to work on that now. I don't, I don't have the time or I've already tried and failed and that's something I'll, you know, I'll get better at someday. I'm still a work in progress. Whatever the excuse that you use to keep from work, you, you will not grow. The one who understands sanctification says, I don't have time to just let this sit here. I, I'm deficient in this area. And I want to please Christ. I, want, I see his example, and I want to follow his example. I'm going to do something about it right now. That can look like disciplining yourself, like forcing yourself to, to get into some sort of schedule and to, or, or to developing new habits. But more often than not, it's going to mean that you are going to choose to get someone else, at least someone else in the church involved. It isn't, and it is in no way here a stretch to assume that working out your salvation will include the involvement of the church. This, this, this command to work out your own salvation is actually a plural command. Again, it's, and it's kind of a cue. It's reminding us of the overall context not, not just as the, the context of the letter to the church in Philippi, but also even to the closer context of church unity. Remember, the overall emphasis of church unity was the, was the theme of 127 through 2-4 before we got to the, the, the hymn of Christ, the section in uh, 5 through 11, which is on the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ, which Paul was using as the strongest possible incentive for living for the sake of others, for pursuing church unity. Even though the immediate application of this passage does, yes, lead us to joyfully working out our own salvation, we are reminded that personal sanctification always works itself out in the context of a local body of believers, and it actually can't be done with much effectiveness outside of a local body of believers. Can't be done in isolation. I mean, just think of the nature of the fruit of the Spirit, right? That, they, that is supposed to be growing in you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It, it's really impossible to, to work out your own salvation in areas that are really only measured through your interactions with others. You need others to see how you're growing in love. It's easy to think you're excelling at love if you're a hermit who lives by themselves and you're never around anyone. There's, what, what, where's the love going? No, you, you need others to, to, to measure your growth, to see where you're deficient so you can keep pursuing the, the conformity to Christ. It is impossible to work out your salvation in areas that are only measured through our interactions with others. You need to be involved in the church. This is why the people who are the least involved in the church generally have the slowest growth in sanctification. So I'm, I haven't been doing the pastor thing for a really long time, but it's been over a decade now, and that is the truth. It is the plain truth. The less involved in the church you are, the, generally the less sanctified you are. This is, this is why you need to prioritize the church and being here as much as you possibly can. If your greatest prize, right? If your greatest prize as a Christian really is to be more like Christ, and the way that this happens is as you work out your salvation through the type of spiritual growth that can only really be seen in community, then of course you will not miss any opportunities to draw close and to invite others into your life. And in and, and, and this verse, this, path, this is a present tense imperative, meaning that it is an ongoing, continuous action, a continuous effort. And it's something you're constantly going to be doing. 
constantly working on, not going through little bursts and spurts of faithfulness, and not just learning what needs to change and then just kind of merely committing it to prayer. I said merely committing it to prayer. Of course, you, you should pray. Of course, you should pray for God to help you in this task, and, and that is important, and that's going to become even more evident in the next point. But you are to be constantly working to produce in your life that which you are praying for God to change in you. If you, if you struggle with laziness, you can't sit around on your couch watching TV asking God to change you. You do something. You're constantly working to produce in your life that which you are praying for God to change in you. And if you can find all kinds of reasons to be less involved in church which is the primary means that he uses to answer those prayers, then you've got to ask yourself how strongly you really desire conformity to Christ. Is it really, is it really the priority for you? And this continuous effort of working out our salvation is to be done, as this says, with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. So this points to the seriousness of the effort that we are talking about. It is, it is it's similar to, but not the exact type of fear and trembling that we saw from those in Old Testament Israel. But they only feared when they felt threatened and scared for their lives. This is an ever-present awe and reverence for God, knowing that it is indeed that same God that we see in those Old Testament passages that we have read about in, in the Old Testament, in Revelation, that same God who, who, who has wrath and judgment for sin, this same God who has now saved us and he has called us to be holy as he is holy. That's what we see in, a, in another one of those passages on the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 32, 40 and 41. So the other major new covenant prophecy, Jeremiah says this, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. The fear of God keeps us from turning from him. So our heart is turned from stone to flesh, and God also puts the fear of him in our hearts so that we might not turn away. This is why, getting back to what we said at the beginning, this is why a deeper and deeper understanding of right doctrine is so essential for us. It's essential for us because rightly understanding who God is, right? rightly understanding him, the, the way that we are able to now, it just, it just continues to increase our fear and our awe of this incredible God whom we serve, and it makes it more and more and more impossible for us to turn away from him, to live for ourselves. And it also makes you less and less likely to fear man to the point where you wouldn't hesitate to go to brothers or sisters in the church to strengthen you in your continuous effort to work out your salvation. So remember what we saw last week in, in verses 9 through 11, right? The fear of God there, the whole universe, the whole universe of created beings, the living and the dead, will one day bow the knee to the Lord. And if that is true, then those of us who already have done this, those who already have the proper fear and awe of this God and know him to be omnipresent, to be always with us, always watching, we need to be striving for 
the obedience that is proper of those who actually believe that about this God. Point number four, the power of sanctification. The power of sanctification. And we see this in verse 13. He says, for it is God who works in you. It is God who works in you. Well, while we do have the responsibility to, to, to work out our salvation, that is our responsibility, that is the command, it is God who works in us. And, and, and this, by the way, isn't, isn't a partnership. You, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't think of it as you and God, we're, God and I are teaming up to get this done. It's, it's, it's not you work and God works. It's you work because God has worked. That word for there, for it is God who works in you, means, it means because. The because meaning of the word for. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling because it is God who works in you. Because it is God who works in you. So this command should be, this command that we have in, in, in verse uh, 12 should, should be impossible for us. Work out our own salvation, our own sanctification. That would be impossible for us to obey were it not for the truth of verse 13. Because God is at work in us, we are able to work. So there's an obvious visible contrast. You can even see it there between the phrases work out and work in. We are dependent on the work being done in us for us to be able to work out anything. God created us to, to do the good works which he has set apart for us. He created us for those works, but we are like a toy without batteries unless he works in us. We're completely unable to do that which we were created to do unless he gives us the power to do it. And that's what the author of Hebrews is referencing at the end of his letter. In Hebrews 13, 20, and 21, he says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He must equip us with everything good in order for us to do his will. He must equip us. He equip us. He equips us so we can do. He works in us that which is pleasing in his sight. This is exactly how Paul talks about his own ministry uh, in Colossians 1.29. Remember, he says there, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. This, this, th- that verse, Colossians 1.29, it's full of these strong words. He says that he toils. Right? What does that bring to your mind? The idea of doing labor and doing intensive sweat-inducing type of work. And then it says that he is struggling, right? He's struggling, again, bringing to mind a difficult task that takes straining to accomplish. But then the, the surprising thing is that it says that this struggle is done with his, meaning God's, energy. It is God who is powerfully working in him. So Paul sees and understands that in his ministry, he is drawing from a power source that can never be depleted. That can never be depleted. This is what is, is so awesome. And, and, it, and it was such an encouragement to me this week, thinking through these verses, thinking through the impl- implications of my sanctification in my battle with, with different sin in my life, in the, in the fight to engage in all forms of ministry and service, I have an infinite power source working in me to accomplish these things. My, my job is to be diligent about getting to work at these things, to give myself to them, but it is God who empowers 
me to do them. Because I can lose, I can fail, I can burn out. But the source for my strength to conform to Christ-likeness, to, 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 to become more and more holy, and to, to follow in his example of obedient service, praise God, that power does not come from me. The, the God who has called me to this glorious purpose, the God who has called you to this glorious purpose of giving your life to working to look like Jesus Christ is the very same God who gives his unlimited power to the task. I can have full confidence that there will never be a sin that cannot be overcome because it is not my power that I'm dependent on. It is his. So if you, brother or sister, get to the point where you believe that there is some area in your life that, that will always defeat you, that will always, that will always beat you down, you need to know this truth. You, you need to know the truth that you need two things to see the sin put to death in your life and to be able to put on righteousness in whatever that situation might be. You need effort and you need energy. And the energy is from God and it is an infinite supply the only thing missing must be the effort. And if you say, as I've heard, but I have tried and tried and tried. And I will say to you, those sound like past tense verbs. And this is a command for continuous effort, toil, struggle. So be encouraged when you give yourself to the task of, of pursuing Christ-likeness. You will discover God powerfully working in you to continue to empower you to battle sin and pursue obedient service. And as long as you continue to strive for holiness, using all of the means of, of every gift that God loves to equip those who long to do his will with, you, you can trust in this. As long as the effort is there, the power to accomplish it will always be available. You just have to be willing to work at it as long as it takes. Notice it goes on to say, it is God who works in you both to will and to work. So this is more of the continuation of that promise that we saw in the, new in the new covenant in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. God not only gives us the power to continue to be sanctified, but he also works in us that our wills would be those that desire to do so. God will work in us to align our wills with his. He does both things. He works our wills and he works our work. If he only worked to give us wills the desired to obey, we would never produce any real fruit. And in a similar way, if he only worked to empower our work without working to align our wills, we would just be a bunch of unwilling workers who eventually grow to despise our master. But that is not what he does. Our only hope is for him to do work on our wills and on our work. It is truly awesome. Turn, turn over to uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 16 through 17. Uh, look at this example uh, on this. In 2 Corinthians 8, 16 through 17, it's talking about Titus. And Paul says, But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you, for he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. So, so notice that God puts into the heart of Titus the same earnest care for the Corinthians that Paul had. Now, the means that, that God might have used to do this wasn't just, probably wasn't just some miraculous change of heart. 
It was no doubt his constant interaction with Paul about the Corinthians and and his prayers for them. Nevertheless, Paul praises God that God has made the will of Titus one that now cares for the Corinthians. And then, and then look, it now says that, that he himself, Titus himself, is very earnest and goes to you of his own accord or his own will. God puts into Titus the heart that he needs to do the work that he has called Titus to do. And then we see that it is now the will of Titus to go to the Corinthians out of his own sense of earnest care. So so was it God's will or Titus's will to do this? By the end of verse 17, it is both, right? Because God has worked to will the heart of his servant. So as we strive to obey Christ, to toil and work at our sanctification, God is able to create in us a willingness to do what needs to be done in a way that it truly becomes our desire our true desire. So if you are struggling to overcome sin or you are just not serving in some area like you know that you should, God can and will work on your will and empower your work, but that will never happen to the one who refuses to obey the command, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Finally, point five. Point five, the purpose of our sanctification, the purpose of our sanctification, and that is evident right there. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God does this amazing work of sanctification in the lives of his people for his good pleasure, meaning it is, it's not about us. Again, it's not because you were so attractive to him that he just had to draw you in. And it's not because even that you're so pitiful that he just feels sorry for you. No, as the, as the people that he has called and redeemed to be his people, as they see the unbelievable example that, that you've just seen of their Lord Jesus Christ in his willingness to humble himself to to a degree that we can't imagine and that we could never go to. And as they now devote their lives to being like Christ, striving with continuous effort to put off their sin and to put on righteousness, when they do this, he loves to strengthen them for this cause. He rejoices in, in seeing the effect of the salvation that we received through the, the salvation that we received through the obedience of his precious son. He, he loves to do that. It brings him supreme glory. The father loves the son. He was pleased with his obedience, his obedience to the point of death on the cross that purchased our salvation. So he loves to work in us. So so that so through um, so he loves to work in us through his Holy Spirit, so that the full benefit of the accomplishments of Christ can be on display to the world. It is not it's not through mere knowledge or understanding that we are able to enter into the joy of God in this life. It's not by ascending in our thinking in our theology only is only as everything that we know and understand that we then use it to minister to one another. And then as it motivates us to toil and work out our salvation with fear and trembling, it's only then that we are really able to enter into, just again, just a taste of eternal joy in this life. Because one day, as we saw last week, his, his glory is going to extend across all of creation, right? As, as every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's going to happen. But until that day, his good pleasure, God's good pleasure is realized in the collective obedience of the people that he has redeemed as they strive to conform their lives to Christ 
in total dependence on the sanctifying power that he gladly and graciously and continuously works in us. So, beloved, my beloved, let's be good stewards of the time that we have and take our sanctification seriously. Let us rejoice in the task that brings pleasure to the God that we love by embracing any and all means for sanctifications that he might use, for sanctification that he might use in our lives. His, his word, his people, trials. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Longing to follow in his perfect example. And let's believe the promise that it is this same God. It is this same God who delights to make us look more and more like his son. And it is that God who supplies the power to accomplish that goal. Let us believe and trust in these great truths and then toil and struggle with all of his energy to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that that we see here. Thank you for the gift of regeneration. Thank you for the blessing of living in in new covenant realities. Father, would you help us to live lives undistracted as much as possible by, by the world and to focus and to work and to toil on becoming more and more like Christ in all we do in our personal lives and in our ministry and the way we live for others. We would we would work out our salvation, trusting fully in your power, believing, <laughs> believing in that power to, to, uh, to do its work in us. God, it is so necessary, so necessary that, that this be something that our whole church is striving for in unity. And as I pray for anyone in here today, any of our members or those who might be members here soon, to, to put aside any type of fear of man that would keep them from digging into and working hard the task of conforming to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.